It's April 15, 2009. Welcome to Neuroscientist Talk Shop, UTSA's neurobiology podcast. Our guest today is Brian Christie, who has appointments at the University of Victoria and beautiful UBC. His team first reported the stimulatory effects of exercise on neurogenesis and LTP in rodents, and since then he's been exploring the structural and physiological impact of exercise in hippocampal granule cells. Hi. Nice to... See you, Brian. I need you to write my grand intros. That was awesome. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Done. As long as I can visit you in Victoria. <laughs> so uh, around the room, we've got a little group today. We've got Brian Derrick. Hi, Brian. Hi. And we've got Todd Troyer. Hello. So um, I want to start with kind of a really broad question that I always wonder about when people talk about neurogenesis. Um, so it's it's not necessarily intuitive from an information processing perspective that bringing new naive computational elements into a, um, a network would benefit its performance in real time. And so how, like, what, do we know much about how new granule cells in the DG are integrated into the hippocampus? Are there general theories about how this integration happens? I mean, this is sort of one of those questions I've always wanted to ask, but I'm too afraid to in seminars. Okay. Um, I, I mean, it's funny because initially I think people thought about the introduction of new cells is kind of like adding new diodes and transistors into a circuit board and a computer. And, you know, you envision doing something to that static entity. You know how fragile our computers are. If you, you know, start poking holes in the circuit board, it's going to stop working. The computer is going to dysfunction and become dysfunctional. And that was the, I think the attitude for a long time in, in the literature. And it was really hard to get this notion. in. And now we're tending to see the brain as more fluid. You, you don't think of skin as being, you know, defective if you get a scratch or a cut. You know, the epithelial cells and, and epidural cells are, are going to start repairing themselves, you know, close off, you know, any blood vessels that are, you know, have been broken. The skin will regenerate. Everything's whole and healthy. And that's a, a process that seems to be a, a bit, in a way, recapitulated in the brain in some regions. And, um, having that sort of plastic nature might be exactly what enables learning and memory to be so fluid. And if you take away that, you know, these new neurons, you're probably going to decrease the ability of, of animals to learn and remember. I don't know that you'll necessarily take it away or inhibit already learned tasks because I think memories reside in different regions of the brain than when you have these constantly shifting neurons. Um, but for the process of, of actually doing or, or learning something, I think you need to have a very plastic region. And what's more plastic than, you know, being able to introduce new cells into the region? And that same process also seems to contribute to plasticity of existing cells. And that's the other thing people forget, that they view it as, you know, neurogenesis doing something. Well, that whole process also involves changes in the existing cells. So that's a good good point, though. So in terms of differing or changing functionality of, of the network itself, how is it different to change branching and dendritic patterning versus adding new cells to the mix? And then, I mean, it seems like one would definitely be more costly than the other. And why <clears> would you have one versus another? And would they serve different purposes? Um, yeah, I think the flexibility is probably has more to do with the dendritic patterning. That's what that's my own uh, guess. Um, and there's there's a lot of theories over why you have to add the new neurons. I, it, part of me likes the, is attracted to the, the temporal notion where the cells are going to serve as time point marks um, for memory processing. So memories that are associated with a, um, a similar time point are all going to go through you know one cell, let's say. If that theory is true, then you should be able to target certain cell populations that are born around learning an event take them out, 
and have the animal forget that event. And, and so that's something that we could actually try doing now that we know we can tag new cells that are being created about the same time that something's being learned and get rid of an association. So let's say if you taught an animal to learn to, that a platform in the Morris water maze is always going to be in the left quadrant when the red light is on in the room, that associated, and it'll be on the right side if the blue light's on. So learning where the platform, or that there is a platform, it is one type of learning, but doing those associations, I think, is where the hippocampus is involved. And some of those temporal aspects, I think, are involved these new neurons. So if you take away those new neurons, they should forget these associations. And, you know, here's a great experiment. I had the money and the way to selectively knock <laughs> up the new cells. Really, but, you know, it's a little trickier than that, right? Because if, if they are participating, you're selectively ablating neurons that are participating in a some task. You don't know if they actually help if they weren't, or they hinder if they weren't there. Yeah. Right? So, you, I mean, there's other, there's other controls uh, to do. Because, yes, yeah, so they are participating and maybe selectively in that in that task, but then you would... Uh, then you'd be hindering maybe lots of things or yeah. hindering the memory of that yeah. of that task, right? Yeah, and, that, and that's, you know, I guess one of the problems with some of the X-radiation work in that they you ablate all the newly produced cells, but you also call them inflammation. And the inflammation changes dendritic structure, dendritic function. It changes the way in which synaptic communication, you know, can be accomplished because you, you change the, you know, just the dynamics of the biophysics of the whole structure. And um, we never think about that. We new neurons are stopped. You know, sort of what people will look at there. You know, because it's the shiniest button in the you know drawer when you're looking, right? And you forget that you know, well, you got to have all the other compartments working. You know, to to have an active, properly functioning hippocampus. So, how much is known about the the time course? It seems like that's one of the things that you may be able to dissociate some of these things, like things like. Um, you know, increased uh, dendritic plasticity or synaptic plasticity for existing cells yeah. could potentially go away before a lot of the new neurons get fully integrated. And so you may be able to time tasks to, to yeah. dissociate some of those things. Um, can you do like how can you do a very brief uh, thing of a uh, bout of exercise to get a, enough of a time point to do those kind of experiments, you think? We've had. Increases in neurogenesis with as few as three days of exercise. Let's. I, I, I want to stop you right there. Can we first? We'll get back to that, and I definitely want you to bring that up again. Let's talk about that effect. What's the effect? What have you seen? What are the the known modulators of neurogenesis? First of all, what have you focused on, and some of the mechanisms that you sort of got in your head? Okay. So the um, I guess the first, you know, the the big event was. Uh, um, our paper with uh, um, Henriette, where we showed that exercise alone, you know, increased neurogenesis. So you had this behavioral modification of existing brain structure. You know, that was something no one really thought, you know, could occur, you know, seriously. We, it's still not in textbooks, in, you know, in a lot of cases, right? Um, then you start out of thinking of mechanisms and there are actually some papers out. There's a, um, Nieper had some and, and Kotman, um, showing that animals that exercise had different levels of neurotrophins in their brains. And so that's sort of the most, uh, you know, intuitive place to go uh, first. And the neurotrophin of, of choice had been BDNF, brain-derived neurotrophic factor. Um, 
I think Gomez Vanilla and, and, and Cotman and Dieper, and, you know, have all pretty conclusively shown that if you exercise, levels of BDNF go up. That's associated with increases in neurogenesis. If you take BDNF and inject it into the subventricular zone or, or even the hippocampus, you can increase neurogenesis. There's a little bit of a confound because breaking the blood-brain barrier and pushing anything into the brain increases neurogenesis. You get a, a reactive process going. And those newly formed cells might be facilitated to develop into neurons because brain-derived neurotrophic factor has now been injected into the region. And um, so, but it's still, it's, you know, it in cultures, it facilitates neuroid outgrowth. It helps keep cells alive. FGF does the same. IGF, VEGF. All these neurotrophic factors seem to play a role, but there's a, a separate side to the story, and that's excitation coupling. And, and I think Andrew uh, often um, in his group, have done a lot for that. And they've, you know, basically the idea has been that glutamatergic signaling mechanisms are required for cells to survive and thrive. And if they don't become hooked up and linked into the network then the cells aren't going to survive. They're going to die off, and they're going to be part of the, you know, the chaff, I guess, you know, and you won't have the kernels um, left. Um, so you, you, you know, have to have the sort of developmental support plus the active um, integration of these cells in the network for things to work. And then you have to have some sort of demand. I mean, if the brain doesn't need the new cells, even if they start forming synapses, you know, if they're not using them, you're going to lose. So the, cell, the new complement of cells that are formed, are they, what's the break between neuronal versus glial versus, uh, you know, epithelial? Or <clears throat> well, it depends with the groups, but it typically in the dentate gyrus, if a cell, you know, differentiates and, and survives for more than a couple of weeks, it, it's over an 80% chance it's going to end up being a neuron. And a lot of groups show 90% plus. You know, the, the formation of new glial cells seems to be, you know, a lot rarer than we originally thought. And it could be that what we saw in, in, in some of the more, some of the earlier studies is a reactive astrocytic process, reactive gliosis, where, you know, because of uh, the way that animals were being handled or used or the process was being done, yeah get this reactive gliosis process. It takes up BRDU, so you see these cells that are glial positive as well as um, BRDU positive. And we also know that GFAP is transiently expressed in uh, neural or stem, neural stem cells, NSCs. And so some of the early cells that we thought were glial cells might actually have been these, you know, neural stem cells that are, you know, sort of being misidentified. And in, you really have to look at the shape of the cell rather than the molecular marker of the cell alone, right? But the so the but you've also shown that the neurogenic capacity across the subventricular zone isn't the same, right? So I mean that seems really interesting. And has there been a lot of follow up on that in terms of looking at how? And this is right tucked in next to places that you yeah. do see neurogenesis. So does that give you any? Have there been any clues about how neurogenic capacities are regulated? Yeah, um, I mean that's where we hope to go with this. So there's these neurogenic quiescent zones. And, um, and there are parts of the dentate jars that look exactly like the rest of the dentate jars. They have cells just like the rest of the dentate jars, but there's absolutely no stem cells. And so it's a good place to sort of do punch analyses 
We can take out a, a section of that plus an adjacent section where there is neurogenesis and start doing some differential arrays. Where are these regions? Are they I identifiable anatomically? Yeah, they're um, the most anterior um, uh, portion of the dentate gyrus, you know, so closest to the midline. Um, and they, they really only go back about 40 microns, right? So you, but you have a nice identifiable um, area. It does seem to increase in the size of age, um, but then the whole hippocampus you know, the, the amount of neurogenic activity you see decreases with age, right? So, right. you know, it's a, you can't really do the comparative it's hard, you yeah. know, area analysis, right? Yeah. I, I have a couple of questions. One of them is <clears throat> the two main processes with neurogenesis, and that's the proliferation, and then the survival. Yeah. And, and a lot of the work you presented today was on proliferation. I'm a little bit interested in survival only because a lot of people have linked that to the learning. And that is that, yeah. for instance, the Olariu and Heather Cameron's group have shown that uh, in a single day training in an episodic memory task, uh, there was an increase in survival of eight day old cells. So um, I'm curious as to, uh, well, I have actually a number of questions about this, but my mm -hmm. first one will be do you know of any kind of interaction between proliferation and survival? Because I'm, my data is sort of suggesting to me that when you alter survival, you also alter proliferation and they seem to balance. Mm -hmm. For instance, <clears throat> I believe it was um, Gould and Cameron, along with Bruce McEwen, who showed that NMDA antagonists increase proliferation. Yeah. But what they can also do is kill um, immature neurons over a period of time. Uh, because without their NMDA receptors being activated, that appears to be essential for their survival. Yeah. So the death of those immature neurons may be responsible for the increase in proliferation. I'm wondering, has anybody looked at that? Do you know? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> that's a, that's a, a great question. Yeah, I've always been intrigued by that finding. And um, <clears throat> that's an that's a interesting hypothesis that you know, it could be these death of new cells. Um, we've got looked at it in terms of it being sort of a rebound supersensitivity so that if you need to have activation of NMDA receptors to help facilitate survival, <clears throat> what you're doing is you're taking it away and then these cells become more active afterwards and so you, you increase you know, excitatory activity in the region briefly, sort of like innervation supersensitivity. Yeah. Yeah. And, and so that's what you see and it's a transient effect that goes away. And I, I don't know how well the, the cells become integrated because no one's ever really you know, oh, looked at it. Yeah, yeah. Because right. yes. they, they may proliferate but then die at a much higher rate. Yeah, that. yeah, exactly. So. But if you could, if you could target, uh, uh, well, if you can target new neurons and kill them somehow, right? You could yeah. test whether, because putting on the antagonist of the NMDA antagonist does just a gazillion tons of things, yeah. right? <laughs> Um, it seems like that if you could do some kind of targeting, then you could ask if there's a specific things for the, the growth, you know, either at either stage. Yeah. Um, whether that lack of new neurons signals some other process yeah. that's less general, right? <clears throat> and there's, there are ways to do it. I mean, you can, uh, you know, use a policy promoter to link a, a cell to, you know, some apoptotic cascade or. Um, you could, you know, the radiation is the way people have done it mostly. People, other people have used um, anti-cancer drugs, 
right? Anything, you know, it targets mitotic um, cell division. And we tried that too. We tried a drug called tamazolamide. It doesn't have a lot of the, um, uh, you know, the side effects that some of the heavy um, uh, chemotherapies do. Human patients at least don't report as much, you know, nausea and vomiting and stuff like that. And, uh, we have problems completely wiping out neurogenesis. Um, it, it, like I said, there seems to be a lot of overlapping pathways um, that want this process to continue. It's been evolutionarily conserved across species, across you know, generations, you know, for thousands of years. And, it, you know, so it has to be, or we, you know, suppose that it's an important process. That, you know, that's, that's really needed for normal functioning. <clears throat> and I know human patients that undergo heavy chemotherapy with extra radiation of the, the brain, they have a number of effects, but one of them is they, they do have a decline in learning and memory and cognitive processing. <clears throat> they have a lot of inflammation. They're sick. They, you know, want to sleep a lot. Um, you know, one of my uh, friend's wives is undergoing this type of therapy right now, and she's not at her sharpest, but it's hard to differentiate those true cognitive effects of losing the neurogenesis from all the side effects of the drugs and right. that, right? So it's, it's going to be a, an interesting, but a little bit of a tricky question to, to answer. Any perhaps specific episodic memory tasks to really look at that kind of cognitive depth? Yeah. And that's the other thing. What's the best task for the dented jars, right? Mm -hmm. right. You know? Well, if you look at, at the animal literature, then the dentate has a sort of an odd function. Uh, in human imaging studies, it is very active mm -hmm. uh, during novelty exposure. Yep. And we don't know if those are the, the principal cells or those are inhibitory inner neurons, which really can which make it much of the activity in the dentate. Yeah. <coughs> um, the other thing is, is that when you, you can lesion the dentate, and uh, McNaughton's group lesioned the dentate with colchicine, so only 10% of it remained. And the animals couldn't learn anything. They couldn't learn spatial tasks. They just couldn't learn. However, place cells that they had found prior to the lesions were still intact. So it appeared that the, the dentate virus isn't necessary for the reestablishment of place fields in the hippocampus. So that leads back to the idea that the dentate may be crucial for encoding information, but not necessarily for retrieving. Retrieving it, yeah. And which is uh, something that's coming up over and over again. Uh, in, uh, 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 which is an odd idea, because the inputs to the dentate are plastic. Uh, the dentate shows competitive NMDA-dependent learning. The outputs to the dentate are plastic. Yeah. And the dentate shows diffuse, but they still show place fields. Yeah. So why would you have all these plastic processes, you know, in an entry point to making a memory, yet it never be used to recall a memory? Yeah. Well, you have to you have to learn how to regulate uh, whether you want to remember something. Exactly. Or another possibility is is that these plastic processes are not necessary for memory per se; rather, they're necessary to separate memories or keep memories discrete, and. Um, <coughs> So, and, and, well, that leads me to my next question in terms of survival. What are some of the factors that uh, you think are probably important in neuronal survival over that period of time when most of the new neurons die? And, I mean, it's, it's funny you would mention Distrahoff because the title of uh, my grant is Afferent Regulation of Granular Cell Survival. Yeah. So we're looking at a number of different receptors that may be involved with, you know, 
telling an eight-year-old grandfather, don't die. Yeah, yeah. So. And I think that is, you know, the, the regulatory event is, is their activity, you know, the use-it-or-lose-it type thing. And, and it's, it's not easy to get a good assay on it. It seems like it would be simple to, to do. You know, if the cells are active, then they're being used and they should survive. But, um, you know, I think some of that McNaughton Barnes work has been to show that, you know, there's, what, 2% of granule cells yes. are active at, you know, any time. And so it's a very low number, and so to actually get not only active cells, but active new cells is, is a bit of an endeavor. You know, they count in the ones and twos, right, you know, per slice when they're doing this and trying to find statistical significance. And I don't know if that's the, you know, the way to do it. And even the the studies, they try to behaviorally load the dip hippocampus, and Cameron's done this with Jason Snyder, and, um, and Paul Franklin has done it they don't see huge numbers of cells active at any one time. And um, so I, it leaves you at a loss as to why you want to keep producing so many cells. <laughs> but, but, you know, maybe it's, you know, kind of, you know, like those uh, blinking Christmas tree lights, right? You know, there's lots of them on, but they're not all active at any one time. But they all are active within right. a time period, right? And our assays right now kind of catch you at a time point. Right. And, you know, and depending on the you know, marker you're going for, you, you can change the amount of time in front of the, these cells being used. But, um, yeah, it's such a low ratio. Yeah. But, you, you know, I, I had sidetracked in my own mind there because I was, you're thinking, you were talking about the plasticity of the region before. And I was thinking that another good analogy is your eye. Your, your eye has the ability to change, to move, to, um, you know, change the size of the, the pupil, and then it transmits information back into the static, you know, part of your, of your brain. So your eyes are, are really a plastic memory accessing, you know, thing that maybe the dentate's an equivalent yeah, of like within a, the brain. a modified gate. Yeah, a modified gate, right? And then now you get to the static region, and we know that if, you get a lesion in part of your visual cortex, you can get a scotoma. But quickly afterwards, you accommodate for the scotoma and you, you know, your, your structure readapts. And even though you can prove that there is a scotoma there, you know, if you do real discrete testing, it's very hard to pick up because scatic movement, you know, obviously gets the, the scotoma, right? Yeah. So, so that's kind of completely... A lot completely different, but we're not talking about like the dentate is the key to the brain, right? So it's the only place. Like if you shut off the dentate, uh, you can't do anything. No, this no, is whether no. so. I, well, whether that's true or not, right? No. Uh, the uh, the question is that if it is a spe- you know very sp- whatever degree is specialized, right? No. Uh, for this thing, how do you know how much is known about the evolution of the of the dentate in terms of it comes by? Like where does it come from? Is it really as a, a special thing that's been so important, you know, in, you know, so leeches or lampreys or, you know, whatever. Like, I, I don't know, I'm going back to leeches, right? But uh, invertebrates. But, you know, vertebrates are... I think, uh, my, well, the mammalian phylogeny is, is, yeah, is, is archaecortex. It's some of the first cortex before the cerebral cortex that reforms. And parts of the hippocampus have been, you know, um, I think distance from it, evolutionary is an inducing grisium, which is up in the cingulate cortex. Um, so, that, so that hippocampal structure 
is one of the you know primordial parts of cortex. Um, its function then tends to be far more olfactory related than I, th- I think cognitive, <clears throat> and that might be a clue into how we you know should be thinking about it. Um, it, it you're right. You, you, if you remove the dentate jars, you don't become a zombie. You know they can't do anything, right? <clears throat> but your ability to do associative learning, I think, would be severely compromised. At least that's what the mammalian model is: is that get rid of the dentate in, in rodents, and you really significantly impair associative learning. And so they, they can't do you know these uh, matching uh, um, uh, paradigms, especially olfactory ones. But, you know, so. All sorts of development is unusual in that it's an inside-out type of pattern, whereas the rest yeah. of the cortex usually goes outside in. Yeah. So it starts at the bottom and moves up through the radiogly to the top and then packs it this way. The, the dentate is sort of yeah. packs in the bottom. And you know, there apparently is no, no, it's not a turnover, like you mentioned in your yeah. talk today. There is no pigmentocytosis that, or cell death, any outer layers that matches. It's specific yeah, to the growth of new cells in, exactly. the, in, the, in the brain. But you had mentioned that they get more dense, though, as we get older. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So that's or if you exercise is, the, is the, yeah, the real one. You, you have oh. a higher density. I did that once, and it really hurt. <laughs> exercise? Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I thought, you know, something like that really can't be good for you. Yeah. So, yeah, it's compaction injury. Right? Yeah. You don't want that. So, so what about exercise? What is... The molecule. What is the process? What? What? I mean, it's like a huge nebulous thing to say that exercise causes this. As a, yeah. you know, what do you, what do you target? How do you even begin to look at that question from a you know petri dish point of view? Well, it's a, it's a, a, I think a very discreet answer. But if I told you, I'd have to kill you. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> no, um, yeah, because no, no one knows. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> be big the Olympic committee. Uh, yeah, the Olympic committee. Um, no, so what what do I think plays the biggest role? It's cardiovascular. You know, the hugest increases in neurogenesis come with some sort of cardiovascular change. That even includes chewing. If you uh, there's a, a few Japanese groups that have shown that chewing can increase neurogenesis, and you know, I was like, what? Why? <laughs> what does that have to do with cognition? Uh, but the intervention. Huh? <laughs> well, the intervention is the same. As it, you know, for uh, um, it, you know, a lot of reasons in the brain, it all comes and focuses out, right, in, into the uh, mandibles. And so as you're moving your jaw and stuff like that, you end up increasing blood flow. And where's the blood flow? Oh, it's the same circuit that comes in, and so you get increased blood flow to the brain. Cerebral. And it's all coming up the middle, middle cerebral artery, right? And so you have the circular walls flowing, and the hippocampus is situated in that nice vascular niche. So that's why I think it's that cardiovascular component, because it's seated in this vascular niche with stem cells right next to this enriched supply of neurotrophic factors. So you also actually see an increase in vascular supply, like an actual yeah. um, vasculature, right? In the yeah, with exercise. Yeah. yeah, with exercise. Yeah, so, and, and uh, you know, that's a good point. You're not only are already situated, but you increase the vasculature in the entire brain, but the main places where the new cells are formed are still restricted you know, to these neurogenic niches in the, in the SVZ and the SGZ. And I think there it is this relationship between blood flow, you know, these neurotrophic factors and a cascade of neurotrophic factors that includes, you know, the IGF, FGF, BDNF, yada, yada. Plus, you have activity. 
in the hippocampus when you exercise, and that's that theta activity where the cells are, are rhythmically oscillating, so they're firing action potentials um, in, in a rhythmic fashion, sustained activity, and that, you know, helps to combine a lot of essential events, you know, the, the excitation coupling as well as the, you know, neurotrophic factor support, and you have the progenitor cells there in the right location, so you get neurogenesis. Great. Good. Okay, I have a few more. Let me, let me, let me go down my list. Brian's twitching to go. Yeah, I know. I've already forgotten the question. Go ahead. Damn it. Um, yeah, it had to do with... Uh, 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 oh, yeah. One of the things I was going to mention is that the paper I haven't read yet, but it's out there. When they lesion the antrial cortex in the angular bundle, and they got increased proliferation on that side. That may be reactive, but it would seem to counter the idea of afferent activity actually causing... Uh, um, either proliferation or survival. Um, uh, in, um, but what if it's an inhibitory circuit, right? And you've released activity by, by lesioning. You know, because there are lots of feed forward inhibitory circuits. That's true. That's true. And then you get a lot of GABA release and you get a lot of neurons analog survival. So, that's, yeah, okay. That makes sense. Okay. Um, what, looking into the future, um, uh, what do you think the possibility is of using these neuronal stem cells in terms of, of therapeutics? What are, what are the, the, the roadblocks? What are the limitations? It, it's something that's pretty yeah. far off. Well, I, I look at it as if we understand this process, then we understand how to make cells survive in the brain. And, and then there's, you know, I think it's also, you know, sometimes it... You have people who want to have a, a marriage of a religion and science, and I think you know if there was a you know logical planning, you know by some divine entity by God, and that that you know here is one of the perfect models to figure out how to produce, integrate, and direct new cells into an existing structure is exactly what you need to do to replace you know brain matter in someone who's had damage. And so you've got a, a great model system that can help you, you know, get to a, another point in, in sort of, you know, medical history, right? Um, that said, are, are we close? You know, we, we don't understand the, the milieu. We don't understand, you know, if it's one process or multiple processes, as we suspect, that are you know, responsible for initiating and maintaining this process. And then the targeting cues that they have to follow. I mean, if it's the human brain can do this, why can't the spinal cord exactly. know, do it when you, yeah. when you got a break, right? And, you know, that's CNS as well. So, um, you know, so we don't understand those, those differences. And, um, so are we close now? No, but can it help anyone with the disorders now? Yes. And, uh, you know, the evidence is there for Parkinson's disease, Alzheimer's disease, you know, a lot of the dementias, even vascular dementias, um, stroke patients, if you get up and exercise, your rate of uh, cognitive decline is decreased. Your, you know, your peripheral body loves it too, right? Your heart and your, you know, lungs and your gut and all, all kinds of, you know, benefits that, you know, are, are come along with the exercise. But you really do, you know, help reduce the, the trajectory of the disorder. So you're going to, you know, have more cognitive awareness and more cognitive maintenance for a lot longer period of time than you would if you didn't exercise. You know, if you sat and ate ice cream, which it tastes good, but it's not going to give us the neurogenesis. 
I know your jaw gets some exercise doing that. Yeah, it's too soft. Yeah. See, that's why I don't jog. The ice kept falling out of my martini. This is great. This one's going to get a lot of hits. And I don't know about you, but I want to go for a swim right now. So thank you. Thank you for being with us, Brian and Christy. This has been Neuroscientist Talk Shop. Okay.